0: Greetings once again, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. Each week as we read through the sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, we feature a particular sermon, and this week the sermon very much comes from Spurgeon's heart. We're reading from 227 through to 233, which means we're into the New Park Street Pulpit, volume 5. If you're just reading the one sermon this week, it's this one, 227, and its text and its title are from Luke 14, verse 23, compel them to come in. What's striking about this sermon is that it is less an application of the text and more a response to it. Spurgeon launches into his sermon. I feel in such a haste to go out and obey this commandment this morning by compelling those to come in who are now tarrying in the highways and hedges that I cannot wait for an introduction but must at once set about my business. Spurgeon then is in the character of the servant in the parable who is going out in order to speak on behalf of his master. To you I speak, and my voice is unto you, O sons of men. Jesus Christ, very God of very God, has descended from heaven and was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. Begotten of the Holy Ghost, he was born of the Virgin Mary, he lived in this world a life of exemplary holiness and of the deepest suffering, till at last he gave himself up to die for our sins, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. And now the plan of salvation is simply declared unto you. Whosoever believeth in the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. This is Spurgeon's message and this is what he's seeking to drive home into the hearts of his hearers. All that God asks of you, he says, and this he gives you, is that you will simply look at his bleeding, dying son and trust your souls in the hands of him whose name alone can save from death and hell. And this sermon then is really a sustained assault on the soul of unconverted men and women. He says to the people of God, the children of God who have believed that he has little or nothing to say to them as he preaches. He's going about the business of compelling sinners to come in. And to do that, he wants first of all to find them out and second to compel them to come in. So he's going to identify, track and trace, if you will, those who are uh, the objects of his concern. And then he's going to plead with them, reason with them, urge them. And this is Spurgeon, the evangelist. And if you are a preacher of any kind, whether in the pulpit or on the street, as you witness to friends, as you perhaps go out and speak on the, uh, the doors, Wherever it is, you may be, here is a wonderful example of a man in earnest about souls. Now, the, the text is really, uh, as it sometimes is with Spurgeon, a, a springboard. As I've said, he's not just explaining and applying the text so much as he is simply doing what it commands. So this is, if you like, an extension of the text. And to find them out, he wants us to understand the amplification of the command that he finds in the text to go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor, the maimed, the halt or the lame and the blind. And then afterwards, go out into the highways, bring in the vagrants, the highwaymen, and into the hedges, bring in those who have no resting place for their heads and are lying under the hedges to rest. Bring them in also and compel them to come in. So this is Spurgeon's target, if you will. And he begins then to distinguish between some of the different characters with whom he has to do. He speaks, first of all, to those who are poor spiritually, those without faith, without virtue, without good work, without grace, without hope. And he says, my master has sent you, there's emphasis, a gracious invitation. Come and welcome to the marriage feast of his love. And then, some of you, not only poor, but maimed. There was a time when you thought you could work out your own salvation without without God's help, when you could perform good works, attend to ceremonies, and get to heaven by yourselves. So here now are the spiritually maimed, those who are uh, crippled in some way, who once thought they were strong and could work for salvation, but now realize that they are incapable of doing what they once thought they might Then there are the lame, those who are halting between two opinions. So he's taking each of these uh, categories as a spiritual designation. The religion that you have, you make progress at a limp. You have little strength, so little that you make but painful progress. And you're, you're caught between perhaps the world and the claims of Jesus Christ. You know that you should come to Christ, but you are attached to this world. And another class, the blind, you cannot see yourselves. You think yourselves good when you're full of evil. You are spiritually ignorant. You do not understand the truth. And Spurgeon's point then is that I am speaking this good news to all of you. But he feels the pressure of speaking to such classes of uh, spiritual men and women. Those who are poor, those who were maimed, those who were lame, those who were blind. He says, I have to face the Herculean labor that lies before me. I have to understand the magnitude, the greatness of the task. But does my master say compel such as these to come in? You see, the the question now for Spurgeon is not how hard are these men and women, not how difficult is the task, but who has commanded. If God has commanded, then though the sinner be like Samson and I a child, I shall lead him with a thread. If God saith, do it, if I attempt it in faith, it shall be done. And if with a groaning, struggling and weeping heart I so seek this day to compel sinners to come to Christ, the sweet compulsions of the Holy Spirit shall go with every word, and some indeed shall be compelled to come in. Now, we cannot at that point pause and say, well, that was just Spurgeon in his day, or, well, he was a man of unusual faith. He was in a particular time and in a particular context. He had been granted a measure of faith. But his point is that the Lord God of heaven is the one who commands this. And if we obey him believing, we have every reason to anticipate God's blessing upon the work. And it may be for the want of this kind of expectation that we don't speak with earnestness and therefore we don't anticipate and do not receive that which God is ready to give. I'm not saying that if we had more faith, we'd see more blessing, as if it's a a simple formula. But why do we not believe the promises of God? Because the Lord does smile upon faith, upon obedient duty, carried out cheerfully and expectantly in dependence upon the working of the Holy Spirit. And so Spurgeon has described the people to whom he's speaking and he's described them for them. He's looking them in the eye and he's saying, if you fit this description, it is with you that I have to do this morning. And now to the work, directly to the work. Unconverted, unreconciled, unregenerate men and women, I am to compel you to come in. You might think that's the least attractive statement you have ever heard. So many people today hear preaching that isn't even as direct and straightforward as this. And they say, how would you imagine anybody would be converted when you speak to them like this? Well, this is why we imagine that they might be converted because this is God's word and we are speaking to them directly as responsible agents so Spurgeon accosts these men and women he goes up to them in the highways of sin and he reminds them of his errand he is a man speaking from God he's conscious of an authority given to him not his own but derived from the man who sends him the man Christ Jesus derived from the God of heaven who sends him out to speak he says permit me to tell you what the king has done for you he knew your guilt he foresaw that you would ruin yourself he knew that his justice would demand your blood and in order that this difficulty might be escaped that his justice might have its full due and that you might yet be saved Jesus Christ hath died and what's striking here is that for the second time already in the sermon, Spurgeon has attempted to give the kernel of the gospel. Remember, he did it already in his introduction. Now he's doing it again as he launches into the work. Uh, he's, he's making sure that the heart of the truth... God saving sinners by his Son Jesus Christ through the death of the Lord on the cross at Calvary is right before the eyes of men and women. They can't escape that this is what Spurgeon is dealing with and this is who Spurgeon is proclaiming. So, this is the message. This man said, It is finished. Christ has died, he has suffered and he has given up his life in order that salvation may be accomplished for all his people. And the consequence is that a preacher can command his congregation, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. So trust him, renounce your works and your ways and set your heart alone on this man who gave himself for sinners. Now he says, I've told you the message again. What do you say to this? Do you turn away? Now, what he's doing here, and he's going to work through a sequence, is he is essentially entering into a conversation with his congregation. He's supplying them with possible answers, and he's responding to them. So there is essentially a dialogue that is taking place between the hearer and the congregation. And Under the influence of God's spirit, Spurgeon anticipates that he will be addressing some of the the complaints or the cavils or the resistance that he might come against in the hearts of men. So someone might say, this is nothing to you. I don't want to listen. I'm just not bothered. But Spurgeon says, I am in earnest about you. You may despise your own salvation, but not me. You may go away and forget what you shall hear, but you will please to remember that the things I now say cost me many a groan before I came here to utter them. My inmost soul is speaking out to you, my poor brother. It's, it's striking the spiritual pressure. That Spurgeon seems to be under as he speaks these words in this sermon. The whole sermon is, is a burden discharged. There's a, there's a sort of a spiritual pregnancy here and the birth pangs are upon this man to get the truth out of his body and into the souls of these men and women. And so his first point is you may turn away but I need you to understand that I at least am in earnest concerning your soul. So do you spurn it? Do you still refuse it? Then I must change my tone a minute. I'm not merely going to tell you what the message is and invite you as I do with earnestness and sincere affection. I will go further. Sinner, in God's name, I command you to repent and believe. And here's again that sense of holy authority. An ambassador is not to stand below the man with whom he deals, says Spurgeon, for we stand higher. If the minister chooses to take his proper rank, girded with the omnipotence of God and anointed with his holy unction, he is to command men and speak with all authority, compelling them to come in, command, exhort, rebuke with all long suffering. Now this is not arrogance, this is not high-handedness, this is not heavy shepherding, this is a man who is conscious of and confident in his God-given calling that the Lord has put him into the work, it's been recognized by the church of Jesus Christ that he is gifted and called for the labor, and with a simple expectation then that he is God's man and God will do his work through him, he stands and speaks with this simple and humble authority. And perhaps if we're preachers, we need to reckon more completely with the fact that God has given us this responsibility and an authority that goes along with it. And if you are one who sits to hear a preacher, then perhaps you need to ask whether or not in the day and age in which we live, the authority of the the true servant of God, not again, this high handed arrogance, but that of the man who speaks from God on his behalf to the souls of men, that perhaps should change the disposition with which we go to hear those men and the way in which we pray for a blessing upon their word. So we've got this pleading, this earnest and sincere call. Followed on from that, there's this authoritative command to repent and believe. But Spurgeon knows that Uh, The heart is not always so easily overcome, humanly speaking. Do you turn away from me then and say you will not be commanded? Then again, I will change my note." Spurgeon says, I've got more than one way of dealing with this. I'm simply going to exhort you to flee to Christ. And again, he loads himself into the canon here and he shoots himself at his own congregation. Do you know what a loving Christ he is? Let me tell you from my own soul what I know of him. So there's this holy pressure being exerted. It's just the kind of preaching against which some object. While you should let the Holy Spirit do the application... My friend, this whole sermon is application. And under the influence of the Holy Spirit, Spurgeon is going to use every tool, every weapon at his disposal to deal with the souls of men. And so he's wrestling here with men on behalf of God, clearly having already wrestled with God on behalf of men. And he's saying, I want you to understand how much God has blessed me and having blessed me to be confident that he will bless you too. And so he goes on. I know not what arguments to use with you. I'd be fascinated just breaking out for a moment here to to see the texts, uh, sorry, the notes that Spurgeon might have used to preach this text. Whether or not this is at least sketched out these particular headings or lines of thought, these leading thoughts, or perhaps even if at some points he's engaging with the congregation so personally and immediately that he's effectively responding to their responses that some of this may be reactive preaching, that when he sees a a certain attitude or disposition playing across the faces of his congregation, that he's uh, changing up his language and he's changing up his arguments. So he says, I don't know what arguments to use with you. I appeal to your own self-interests. He's saying, don't you realize what's at stake for you? Don't you understand what's going to happen if you die without the righteousness of Jesus Christ upon you, if you devote yourself to that which is worthless and empty? I exhort you, he says, by everything that is sacred and solemn, everything that is important and eternal, flee for your lives, look not behind you, stay not in all the plain, stay not until you have proved and found an interest in the blood of Jesus Christ, that blood which cleanses us from all sin. He's picked up the imagery there of Lot and his family as they flee from Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain and rush for safety as the Lord begins to rain down his wrath upon all unrighteousness. And so exhortation is giving way to entreaty. Do you know what you're rejecting? You are rejecting Christ, your only savior. Spurgeon is just convinced of the importance of these things and it must have been powerful then to hear a man who is uh, full of assurance himself looking these men and women in the eye and saying you need to understand that the living Christ who died and rose from the dead the only person who can save you in the hour of death the only person who can secure you an entrance into heaven that Christ is in danger of being rejected by you and he says he he seems to s- see himself at the at the grave of his own congregation and he says some of you 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 might be able to say, I attended the music hall, but you were not in earnest with me. You amused me. You preached to me, but you did not plead with me. You did not know what God meant when he said, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. And he says, I cannot risk that it is too important for you, let alone for me, that I should not be in earnest with you and entreat you. And so he comes again. Here's another angle. I entreat you. Let this message enter your heart for another reason. I picture myself standing at the bar of God as the Lord lives. The day of judgment is coming. You believe that he's challenging them. Don't you know that you cannot put away religion in the way that you intended to when you think of what is to come after death? And again, Spurgeon's conscious awareness of this bleeds out in his words and in his tone. And now he's... Uh, He's going to address the problem that we've already perhaps hinted at. Some hyper-Calvinist would tell me that I am wrong to beseech you with all love and kindness and earnestness. I cannot help it. I must do it. I must stand before my judge at last. I will answer to him for the way that I have preached And so I cannot but plead with you with love and kindness and earnestness. And I change my note again. Sinner, I've pleaded with you as a man pleads with his friend. And were it for my own life I could not speak more earnestly this morning than I do speak concerning yours. I did feel earnest about my own soul, but not a whit more than I do about the souls of my congregation this morning. Oh, how this puts to shame those of us who preach that we we let the the truth of Christ just lie on the surface of our hearers hearts, that we perhaps don't have this intense and earnest love and affection and therefore real regard for the people to whom we speak. This is love pleading. This is compassion pleading. This is a sense of truth pleading. And he says, you need to understand just how frail you are. Remember, let a mouthful of food go in the wrong direction and you may die. The slightest chance as we have it may send you swift to death when God wills it. Don't you appreciate, he says, that your life may soon come to an end? I do not threaten because I would alarm without cause, says the preacher, but in hopes that a brother's threatening may drive you to the place where God has prepared the feast of the gospel. And so, have I finished? Must I turn hopelessly away? Have I exhausted all that I can say? No, I will come to you again. You have to admire the man's resilience, his conviction, his determination, his earnest perseverance. He will not back down. These people by the end of his sermon are either going to be sick of him or saved by means of the words that he has spoken. And he's quite willing to be offensive in that way in order that he may win souls for Jesus Christ. What keeps you from Christ, he asks. I hear someone say, well, I feel too guilty. No, that cannot be, because you, because Christ is, is so glorious. I am the chief of sinners. No, you're not. The chief of sinners died and went to heaven many years ago. His name was Christ. I am too vile. You cannot be viler than he. You must at least be the second worst. And suppose you are the worst. That's the reason why you need to come to Christ. Your sin is why you need Christ. Don't let your sin keep you away. Let it be what brings you, drives you, draws you to the Saviour. And do it now. Don't waste your time. I have no authority to ask you to come to Christ tomorrow. The Master has given you no invitation to come to him next Tuesday. The invitation is today if you will hear his voice. Harden not your hearts as in the provocation. For the Spirit says today. And now again, is it all in vain? It's incredible, isn't it? The man hasn't finished. Will you not now come to Christ? You almost wonder if if this is the point he climbs out of the pulpit and effectively grabs people by their coats. Will you not now come to Christ? What else have I got? I can be permitted to weep for you. I can be allowed to pray for you. May God have mercy upon us dry-eyed and cold-hearted preachers. May we learn again to weep and to pray. He wants everybody who hears him to to remember that there lives at least one who is in earnest about your soul and one who before he came here wrestled with his God for strength to preach to you and who when he has gone from this place will not forget his hearers of this morning. I say again when words fail us we can give tears for words and tears are the arms with which gospel ministers compel men to come in. You do not know and I suppose you could not believe how anxious a man whom God has called to the ministry feels about his congregation and especially about some of them. Oh again. If we prayed like this before we preached and if we pleaded like this while we preached and if we petitioned God like this after we preached and if we gave ourselves not merely to words but to feeling words with proper tears that we might then compel men to come into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. May God give us this holy concern, this righteous anxiety about the well-being of the souls of the people to whom we preach. I've been at prayer meetings, says Spurgeon, when I've heard children of God pray there, and they could not have prayed with more earnestness and more intensity of anguish if they had been each of them seeking their own soul's salvation. That's wonderful too. Not just the preacher pleading with God before and after, but the whole congregation, the men and women of the church, earnest from their hearts as one after the other, man after man, stands to speak to God on behalf of his people and pleads with God as if his own soul were at stake. Oh, my friends, if we did this in our prayer meetings, what might God do through the preaching of the word? Well, he's got a couple more things that he needs to say. There are some of you here members of Christian churches. You might say, didn't he say at the beginning he hasn't got anything to say to the the converted? Yes, but he says, you make a profession of religion. But unless I be mistaken in you, and I shall be happy if I am, your profession is a lie. He says, you give the impression that you've come into the kingdom, but you yourselves are still outside. You do not live up to your profession, you dishonor it and you can live in the perpetual practice of absenting yourselves from God's house if not in sins worse than that. So just almost a little aside here right at the end. Is he now finished? No. Now does anything else remain to the minister besides weeping and prayer? Yes, there is one thing else. There's one more thing. God has given to his servants not the power of regeneration, but something like it. It is impossible for any man to regenerate his neighbor, and yet how are men born to God? Does not the apostle say of such an one that he was begotten by him in his bonds? Now, the minister has a power given him of God to be considered both the father and mother of those born to God, for the apostle said he travailed in birth." He laboured in birth for souls till Christ was formed in them. What can we do then? asks Spurgeon. We can now appeal to the Spirit. I know I have preached the gospel. Wonderful. That I have preached it earnestly. Praise God. I challenge my master to honour his own promise. Here is courageous faith. God has said his gospel shall not return unto me void and it shall not. It is in his hands, not mine. I cannot compel you, but thou, O Spirit of God, who hast the key of the heart, thou canst compel. He's, he's stopped now preaching to men and he's pleading in preaching with God himself. I know it's my labor with you as though I must do it but now I throw it into my master's hands. It cannot be his will that we should travail in birth and yet not bring forth spiritual children. It is with him. He is master of the heart and the day shall declare it that some of you constrained by sovereign grace have become the willing captives of the all-conquering Jesus and have bowed your hearts to him through the sermon of this morning. Yes, my friends, we are not Spurgeon and we don't have to be, and we shouldn't try to be. He is the man that God made him. But you and I, if preachers, we are the men that God has made us. You and I, if we are Christians, we are the children of God that the Lord has called, and he has put into our hands just the same means of words and tears, preaching and prayer. And he himself is our unchanging, unfailing Saving God, and in the same confidence, and with the same expectation, and with the same courageous faith, let us pray to God for the blessing, and preach in anticipation of the blessing, and from our hearts, with our words and our tears, plead with sinners and compel them to come in, that God, by His great mercy, may accomplish His saving purposes to the glory of His grace. Amen. Thank you for listening. I'm Jeremy Walker, and From the Heart of Spurgeon is a podcast from Media Gratii. For more resources like this, including a biographical film of Spurgeon's life and labours, visit mediagratii.org.